the new way that buyers sort of look at things is they self-educate and DIY as much as they can now, right? And that's not new. Like when I was a B2B buyer originally, I tried to do that too. I just had very limited options. But now there's so much. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of Marketing Revisited. My name is Liam Maroney. I am your host. And on this podcast, I talk to the smartest marketers I know, one topic at a time, to find out what's new, what's changed, and what you need to leave behind to be a better marketer. And today we revisited customer research. And I got to talk to the amazing Ryan Paul Gibson, who is the founder of Content Lift, who specialize in doing exactly this, investigative interviews to understand the entire customer journey to create better content, to create better messaging, and to truly understand your customers better. It was a great episode. I hope you enjoy. Take a listen. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. It is so good to have you here. How are you doing? I am doing great. How are you? I am doing very well. I feel like this is one of those episodes where for anyone who doesn't know, we have been kicking this one for weeks and weeks. And it was, <laughs> I was, I was waiting for the moment where you were going to go, nah, I'm done. This is, this is not worth the effort, but we're here and I'm really excited to start talking. Yeah. Well, no, I, I like talking about this, right? So I'm happy to, I'm happy to wait. I'm patient, right? <laughs> All right. Well. Uh, classic research patients. So yes. we're going to jump right in. So the topic today, we're going to revisit research and customer research. And okay. where I'd love to start this conversation is kind of breaking down a myth that I think if you were to put me on the spot and say, hey, are you doing customer research? I would probably defensively go, yeah, of course I am. Like our organization definitely does. You know, CS talks to our customers every day. Uh, sales talks to our prospects and they're hearing all the pain points firsthand between yep. the two of them. Product does user testing, like across the board, marketing talks to all these parties. So we're getting everything. Between yes. all of those, what are we not getting? Like what research is not happening between those sort of day-to-day -day conversations? Research for marketing. Like that's it in a nutshell, right? Um, I think, let me back it up a bit. So when I, when I started, what you talked about was considered the gold standard of, you know, list, maybe working across the organization, you know, listening to sales calls, talking to CS, talking to the team. I did that. Like I would go and try and understand as much as I could, but it's very different now, I find, and especially as the new way that buyers sort of look at things is they self-educate and DIY as much as they can now, right? And that's not new. Like when I was a B2B buyer originally, I tried to do that too. I just had very limited options, mm -hmm. but now there's so much. So we deal, all those teams you talked about deal with the customer in a certain way, in a certain context, deal with them usually just before a sale has closed or just after. But the reality is there's so much that's happening before they come to a sales team or come to a website if they have to self-install that if you don't understand how and why they're making decisions from that first idea that, oh, this sucks. We, we might want to take care of this thing one day. And then they logically come to something through whatever that path was to buying your product, if you don't understand what that path is, it's going to be really hard to influence their decision-making process. So that's what you're missing, right? 
Um, I hope that answered the question. It does. And that's an interesting way of putting it because I think as you say it, it makes me think when you base all of your research off of what sales is saying and what CS is saying and what product is telling you, all of those started with them becoming not just solution aware, but they became your solution aware. Yeah, so you absolutely. haven't even gone back to how did you even come to decide you needed a solution and what was happening all behind that, which is where the marketing messaging is trying to find the real emotional pain points of what you're trying to solve. Yeah, absolutely. And that's people build short lists of products, not instantaneously. Like you don't wake up in B2B and buy a thing. Maybe for like smaller SaaS that's um, has a low average contract value. It's like, and it's in a discretionary budget, but even then, right? Like there's a tipping of scales that happens that leads me to something. Well, what were those things and why did they exist in the first place? So if you, you need to understand how they're getting there, uh, because that's where marketing lives and breathes. And it's otherwise you're just going to see what you, what marketers usually do is they just rely on that higher intent performance marketing type stuff sales enablement, which is all mm -hmm. good. You need all that stuff, but you're not influencing anyone further upfield to come to you. And when they're building that short list, how do you increase the odds of getting on it? That's the other thing, because yeah. people usually go to their peer. What do they do? They go to their peers. They look at reviews and um, they're casually exposed to solutions as they do their job. So some things stay top of mind. How can you be that? Right. So that's how I look at research is like, well, you know, how do I do that? And how do I unlock that? And that's such an important context because, you know, I, and I promise I'm not going to just grill you with objections that come up to why we're already doing research, but I yeah. think about biases I've had when I came into organizations and I, I took the information that was given to me at face value. And sometimes yeah. it is the sales team or the sales leader will say, like we've been selling to marketers or to CIOs for 20 years. Like they buy the same way these type of organizations purchase and they think about it through the lens of how does the sale happen? Not yep. necessarily how does the decision to come into a sales process happen? Yep. And that's Absolutely. the marketing portion of the, of the actual, of the journey really. A hundred percent. So it's like, it's, and you're not, you might not, they might be wrong. Like markets are not stagnant, you know, like, they shift and move over time. One, ex one thing I tell people, like, what was the total addressable and then the total ser serviceable market of video chat before the pandemic? Mm -hmm. What is it now? Mm -hmm. I guarantee you it's different, right? What is it? I don't know, right? But these things, like, there's so much in flux that happens outside the company that you need to understand. And... If you just come in with the, the, this is the way it's always been done. Well, sure. There's probably going to be a buyer, sorry, a, a champion, a user, someone who has to cut the check. You know, there is things they need to do. Legal need be, legal might need to get involved or, you know, an IT person. Sure. Great. But that's typically when you're like getting close to finding, choosing something. Yeah. Everything else has to also, you have to figure out too, like how they're coming to you before that. Right. And, and the reality is the amount of time we're spending with vendors is getting less and less anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. I mean, I, I know that personally. I mean, like, you know, we talk about this all the time, like most of, I mean, they've always said it, most of the buyer journey is already done before they've actually been introduced to a it salesperson, is. but that, that portion's getting less and less and less because 
in a lot of cases, the decisions made, it's it's more about negotiation and contract process and help me get this through my internal processes rather than show me why. Exactly. So when you're positioning this, because it feels, this is sort of, it feels like a different way of putting it. Because I think you could easily come in and it feels like, oh, customer research. We know who our customers are. They, we, we spend all of our time with them. But it's more about how they actually make decisions. But also to your point, how the entire market has changed. And we're going through a phase right now. I mean, I see it in demand gen as well, where just the way people are actually engaging peer-to-peer communication, like it's completely different. Yeah. And, and so it feels like there's obviously a moment in time now where we've gone through this radical shift. So when you think about this from selling it in and coming into an organization, does marketing own customer research? Is that where it starts? Or is this kind of a collaborative ownership? Like, because I can see CS saying, well, customers are ours. So, you know, if it's about talking to customers, it's within our court. You're just an influencer or you're a participant in it. Like, where does it get sold in? I'm going to give that worst answer, which is it depends, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> because it, how it depends, why it depends is what is the objective? For me, anyway, I'm going to speak from my experience. There's different types of customer research interviews, right? Churn, win-loss, um, brand identity, product, UI, UX, customer discovery. There's overlap in those, but there's also nuances and distinctions within those. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do buyer buyer discovery or MJ Peters, um, she calls it marketing discovery, which I like a lot, right? So the reason I, so the second part of that is it should live with the team that it affects the most Mm. first to to my, um, to how I look at it. So if I'm going to be doing, um, a um, a customer interview about how the product features are being used or what new features to build, that should be a product, you know, cause they're, they're knee deep in that. Mm. Um, if it's about you know, maybe lifecycle management, maybe it should be customer success, right? But if it's about how I'm going to influence a market, which is marketing, marketers who understand how to build a go-to-market strategy, you know, in, in addition with sales, right? You shouldn't leave them out. They, they are involved in this. But mm-hmm. marketers need to ask these questions because what they'll do is they'll pick up on things that, impact their work when they do, when they have these conversations, because it's through their lens. A sales converse, a salesperson is really usually just thinking about how can I make my sales process better? Great. Marketing will help a bit there. When it comes to like everything we just talked about, how are they coming to us and why? Marketing has to understand what are the things I'm going to do and where are the insights I'm going to gather. And then when people say things like, oh, that's really interesting. I'm going to sock that one away. I hope that answers the question. It definitely does. And I think it actually leads me to, let's kind of help me define what it actually looks like. So I think, you know, it kind of feels a little kind of fluffy at times, like customer research. Like obviously there's a gamut of this, obviously there's, and it depends across the board, but when we're talking about customer research, are we talking about best, best version of it? Is it informal interviews? Is it jumping in and being a participant in the QBR? Is it a dedicated panel? Is it like, how would you see it materialize? If I, if I said I've 
Sultan, the CEO, everyone acknowledges we have a, a mm -hmm. research gap. What do yeah. we need? A lot of times it comes from what your, where your knowledge gaps are, right? And what you're trying to achieve. Um, and it also depends on the size of your company and your resources too, right? So there's different types of research, right? There's like, like there's primary and secondary. Primary is accessing the customer. Secondary is sort of using the periphery around us, like Quora, peer, uh, communities or reviews or whatever, right? And, and then there's qualitative and quantitative. Quantitative is everything you'd see in your CRM, right? The what? This happened. This thing, this bell got rung. Mm -hmm. The qualitative is usually the why and, why and the how, more of the why. So you sort of need a holistic view of that. The, the challenge usually comes not so much in like, what do we need? Is like, what, what are we able to achieve mm -hmm. with the resources we have? I think that's sort of how I look at it. So yeah. I often tell people, okay, when you're looking at your quarterly reviews or going through them or annual planning, if you instinctively know this is a gap and that could be, we're unsure about a new market. Um, you know, the, our close rates are low. We haven't hit our um, ARR consistently over month over month. Um, one thing I've, I've noticed now with like a lot of sales led organizations, I heard this really interesting um, thing said, we're always behind in deals. So what happens is there's incumbents that people are shortlisting and then they're just going to Google and like, oh, I need someone else. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, this looks good. This fits. So, and they're never, they're just there as like a sanity check against the other ones. Yeah. Right. So yeah. those politics is another one. If everyone's arguing about who the customer is. So those are all, I think, you know, triggers of, we might need some clarity around what we're doing, but then it becomes, okay, well, what can we do? And for a low lift qualitative is actually, um, it can be easy, right? I don't, um, because it's, if it can just go and interview 12 customers. You can systematically, you know, or you can have a system to actually get really good insights just from a few, a handful of interviews that can impact your marketing, right? Or you can like surveys, right? People do that too. So there's all sorts of ways. It's more like, what do we need and what are our resources? Yeah. I want to pick on the surveys for a second because I've, I've been in organizations where they said, oh, well, well, there's all these organizations you can do. Oh, we'll give you access to like a thousand people. We'll give me each $5 Starbucks card and you're going to oh, get yeah, back no. all the answers. What's wrong with that? Oh, well, first off, you have to, <laughs> the $5 Starbucks card. Um, you know, it's again, it's just, there's limitations. There's good things. There's good insights you'll get, but there's also things you will not get. Right. Um, the things you will get is a high amount of statistical relevancy. Yeah. Right. And if you want to make quick decisions about a thing, right. Um, do you, should our webpage or our, our logo be blue? Yes. No. Right. You can still do some qualitative stuff. And what's really good about things like survey monkey or other ones type form, you can have the ability to filter qualitative questions or like, you know, pour that over in a spreadsheet, but that's still very much like a, a what. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. Like a, what happened? It's a, it's, there's only like a surface level there. The qualitative is where you're actually able to get in and peel back layers of things about why are they coming to you? Why is this tool? Why is our tool important? Why was it, um, out of all the other things you could have done, you know, when did it become a priority? 
at what point during your business growth did it actually become, you know, a challenge? That's one of the things we talk about. We don't often try to figure out as marketers, like when does a tool become important? What else are they using? And how are they using those things in, uh, with my other, uh, with the other tools? Like I want to understand the full landscape here. So you can't get that in a survey, right? And that's, yeah. you can still use surveys to your advantage, but you're going to be only getting a piece of the, just a few pieces of the whole puzzle. Yeah. And the, the qualitative bit I want to talk about, because I'm, I'm a big fan of qualitative data, yeah. but God knows it's taken a while. I mean, I, I had to go through like a, a real sort of deprogramming of like, if it's not statistically significant and if I don't have repeatable, like it's just <laughs> not real. And I'm, yeah. I'm there, I've gotten there, but a lot of people are not. And I know that. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the, the fearful parts of qualitative research and how do you overcome this thing where, okay, let's say I've got access to a customer and I'm going yep. through their story. They're giving me the white or talking me through it. And, you know, for, for sake of a scenario, let's say we're talking to financial services companies, enterprise, and we're selling marketing software for our FinServe software in. Okay. How, how many of them do I need to talk to before I get past the sort of unique cultural snowflake things that happen? Oh, well, I mean, this is why we came to, this is a, our political yeah. organization. Like what's, what's statistical significance in qualitative data? So different researchers will have some different opinions, but for the most part, you'll hear people say anywhere from eight to 20, eight to 12 works, right? Cause what happens is if you do your job well, and a lot of it reducing, um, the amount of statistical ir irrelevancy comes to how do you structure the conversation? Cause it's not mm -hmm. just a friendly chat. It's not like. When you interview a customer, it'll feel like how you and I are talking now, but it's not that. It's actually a very structured, controlled environment. But eight to 12, right? Let's just say, because what happens okay. is you'll start to see something called insight saturation is often what they call it in qualitative research. It's really just diminishing returns because you start to see the same things over and over again, whether it's overtly or it's subtext, mm -hmm. right? So another way to look at it as I, I've heard someone say this before. Interview until you start hearing the same things over and over again, right? Right yep. to a certain you know relevancy, uh, and that's it. Because I, I've had I've talked to people who said I'm going to interview 100 people. I'm like, no, you'll you'll find more, a better relevancy of themes and patterns, but the amount of time to interview 100 people at half half an hour to maybe an hour, that's such a long period of time, and yeah. then you have to distill all that data. Yeah. So, so I would say eight to 12 is usually where you start to see themes and patterns, but that's where the process becomes very important to have rigor in the process or else it will be that, or it's just all over the place. Yeah. So as soon as you say eight to 12 customers, I can immediately hear people going, my CS leader would freak out if I asked to talk to a dozen customers. How do you get yeah. past that? that sort of fear of we already take up too much of their time as it is. And like, we're in the middle of like a, yeah. you know, renewal conversations. It's not a good time. Like, how do you break through that? It is a tough one, right? I, I'm not going to sugarcoat it there and I don't have any magic answer. What I will say though, is you can build the case for it, right? Cause often it comes down to what you said to earlier. Oh, we know the customer. Here's everything. Here you go. 
run with this. And it's oftentimes it's best intentions, right? Like, yeah, look at all this data we got you. Sure. But is it data that actually is relevant to what I need to do? Maybe, maybe not. So I think there's a few ways around it. One is, um, you know, you can identify who your, your biggest champions are of your product, right? Oftentimes they're happy to keep talking to you. It's just, it's often the case. Uh, sometimes you can find buyers that just closed. And even though you've, they've been through the process, they often will want to talk about it because they're excited about now being able to solve the problem, right? Mm -hmm. So there's actually a higher propensity for them to want to talk about it. Now you won't get business outcomes there, but that's not what I'm looking for, for the research I do. Right. So that's a few ways to do it. Um, if you're really getting pushback, you can do some of the lower hanging fruit we talked about, which is using secondary qualitative research to build a case and say, look at, here's a few things that we've never talked about that seem to be trending. We should go investigate this more. Right. Um, and then the other thing you can do off, I've seen people do is they just go and interview, they reach out to similar buyers, right? Who aren't mm. using their product. If you're totally getting stonewalled, go to LinkedIn, peer groups, ask people if they'll participate in an interview. Now, one of the things said was like retaking up their time. That, ha that is true. There's a few ways around that. One is you, you're always making it apparent that it's not a sales conversation. Yeah. You are not trying to sell this person anything. You are there to learn from all the great insights and expertise they have, right? That's because that's what it is. And then if you're really hoping to increase your odds, you can incentivize them, which there's always you. debate in that. Yeah. 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 And user But here's the thing though, like some people, if you're interviewing a director or an executive, you know, their time is worth a lot. Well, everyone's is, but you know, that's, they, they look at it as such. So if you, the Starbucks, $5 Starbucks gift card ain't going to fly there. Right. And that's if, if they even want it. But what often happens is use and user interviews, which is a soft, um, they provide access to pre, um, qualified panels and you can go and access like different verticals and people to talk to. They did a, a really good study on this. And for the most part, if you are going out cold, you probably should do it. Mm -hmm. And you probably want to pay their hour, hour, hourly rate, whatever that might be, or maybe in a terrible, terrible donation if they want that. Right. So there's different ways you can get, you can address and solve for the, oh, we don't want to bother customers. Um, and I, I'm talking with some, someone going through this right now. I think it's really just like anything else. You got to build the business case of why, because if you, if you can show, we will make better choices with our marketing and we can increase our chances of winning in the market and making everyone's job easier. Yeah. I think yeah. you can, you can get buy-in for something like that. Yeah. I think that's terrific. I think speaking of the, the, the buy-in, if you're putting this together and you're giving advice to someone who's saying like, I've, I've sold it in, I've, I've said like, yeah, we know we need to do customer research. What kind of a timeline should you be putting together for this? Like if I'm saying, great, we're going to start it. Is this a quarter long endeavor where there's an output or is it a, an ongoing, is there a frequency to us? Do we repeatedly do it every so often? Like what's, yeah. what's the best class version? Everyone's a little different. Um, I, for a, 
one specific project, I like to devote about a quarter to it, especially if you've never done it before. Mm-hmm. And that's often who I work with is the first timers. Because, you know, setting the research objectives is actually um, somewhat the simplest part. And conducting the interviews and going through the data isn't sort of, isn't necessarily, it's not rocket science. It's just a bit of, it's, there's work involved. It's getting people booked. That yeah. that's the hardest part, you yeah. know. Because they're busy and they have a thousand other priorities, right? And you're just looking for help from them. So you nailed it. Usually about a quarter, 10 to 12 weeks. But there are people, there are companies that do it ongoing. Because the more, the bigger a company gets, the more intricacies there are in your your go-to-market motions, the more things start to pop up and things you need to know and understand. What I've typically seen is usually around 100 to 200 headcount is when, you know, product marketing will have some own some Mm -hmm. part of it. But I'm often brought in to work with these types of companies alongside the PMM um, because they are strapped for time, right? And they're doing other things. But once you get to like that 500 headcount, it tends to be a full-time position within the company. Now, where that Mm -hmm. sits could be different, but... That's often how I see it. And then um, at the early stages, there's, there's actually no one. <laughs> Maybe the founder. Often the founders are doing it, right? So, because they're the ones who probably are closest to, to the market and what's happening. Sense. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the cadence can change depending on what you need. But I would say if you're, if you're just starting or you're thinking of doing one project, I would devote at least 10 to 12 weeks from, you know, start to finish. Yeah. That makes sense. And I've, I've worked mainly in sort of the 200 to 500 company ranges. So I've seen a lot of these kind of come together where there's a customer advisory board. Where does that fit into things? Is yep. that an avenue where you can use it or is it outside of that? Because you mentioned PMMs and they tend no, you to can, be you, you, there. Yeah, you can use it. Again, it has its, like anything else, there's, there's limitations, there's benefits and limitations. The benefits is it's, it's instant access. You can float messaging. You can um, get a sense of like what's shifting in the market um, and, and those types of things. The challenge is they are already customers. Maybe they bought five years ago, right? So what's the buying journey now? Or the product, uh, there's new things that are coming up that other companies need to solve problems they need to solve and you can you can pivot into those or build new features right so i think you need a cross-section of both because those advocates help you and sort of in day-to-day but you also need to under- go and still understand okay what what's happening out there outside of our our customer panel someone else might say different but that's how i look at it that's it's interesting because you mentioned earlier sort of new customers and just fresh when they've come in having had no solution beforehand or potentially a competing solution. How much value is there yeah. in happy longtime customers? Are they too biased? Have they been have they been with the solution too long? Are <laughs> they recall off? No, it's just different, right? The recall is yeah, definitely that recall is stronger with customers are just closed. And what's really interesting is if you do your job well, just as a sidebar, if you do your job well in qualitative research uh, functions, you will start to see their recall rematerialize in ways that they hadn't remembered. So usually around like minute eight or minute 10, I will often get that, oh, you know what? 
oh, you know what? I totally forgot this because what's happening is, is I'm, I'm, I'm taking them logically or through each action they took. And then the brain starts, you know, reconnecting all the memories like, oh, yes, I, I remember now this part. <laughs> so you won't get that from a, somebody who's been your customer for five years, right? That type of insights. But what you will get is maybe now they're starting to see things that are changing and there's new things you can build into the product, right? Whereas the new person who's on the early stage of their growth, they might not have needs for new things, but maybe this customer now has tripled in size, right? They're in new markets and they need new things, right? Like all this stuff is sort of like a, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, it's, it's, it grows and evolves over time. So you need all the, you need insights from all those people because they provide different answers for different things you need to uh, tackle in the business. Yeah. Kind of a, and it depends question, but obviously in, you know, we, we've seen with COVID that the world can turn upside down momentarily and everything that was relevant is no longer relevant, but outside of chaotic world yeah. events, how long is customer research relevant for before you have to say it's probably been sitting oh. on the shelf too long and it needs revisiting? That's a good question. I haven't asked that one yet. You know, I was, I've been reading a bit about that and I've seen people peg it around, you know, 90 to about 180 days, mm. right? Which is often how you, you know, often what I say too is twice a year for research for the research I do is usually a, a good cadence, right? Um, it's not always the case. Some things are foundational that always remain, but who knows? Cause there could be like a new community that just popped up somewhere and they're all talking about your product and you have no idea. Mm, right? You might hear about point. it, yeah. but I mean, there's, there's all sorts of new thing. Like again, the world outside of us is not static. Right. So how are you keeping your pulse on what's happening? Um, yeah. so yeah, I would say about after about 180 days, again, cause resources, how much time do you have? Yeah. So as you grow and it's harder to make, you're, you're dividing your time between hats, you know, once or twice a year, it probably will make sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So we've gone through the process where we've sold this in, we've dedicated the resource, we've interviewed the customers, we've gotten the insights. Yeah. What does the output of all of this look like? Oh yeah. So I follow, I lean into the jobs be done methodology. Like a lot of researchers do now. I feel like it's really in the last decade, just sort of exploded. It's just anecdotally speaking. And for those who aren't familiar, jobs be done is an innovation framework historically about, you know, why we hire products, what we hire products to do. And the, the really overall thesis is that we don't hire products for in of its of themselves. We hire them to get things done for us. So one of the examples people talk about a lot is a, you know, I don't buy a drill to make a hole. I buy a drill to hang a picture, mm. but there's so many ways I can hang a picture and maybe I just really love holes. So it's just like, there's all these things you need to understand about, yeah, like why you against everything else. So that's why like jobs be done because it helps. It's a system of understanding that. So to the output, um, I like to look at these buckets and this is sort of, uh, other people have some similarities and differences, but this is just from how I look at it. 
roles and responsibilities because you know oftentimes with firmographics and uh, personas we look at like company size and their title and revenue great awesome i care more about like what do they need to get done what is what are their priorities and what are they on the hook for right so i care about that in the context of you know their business and their role i care about pains and anxieties and how i define those are pains are, are what's stopping you from achieving your priorities and your responsibilities anxieties are the fears around them them not getting done or what have you um and then i often i like to look at um the first thought and trigger or the business trigger and that's a lot of that jobs to be that language so what was a catalyst that I help them identify a pain exists in the first place. Not necessarily they're looking for a solution yet, but they're like, oh, this sucks. <laughs> you know, um, make note of this one, put on my whiteboard. And what then what were all the additional things that tip the scales into them looking for a solution? Sometimes people break this out into like passive looking, active looking. I sort of lump it together for a first pass. And I... So I look for like all those cows and triggers, how they researched. So what did they do? What are the actions they took? And often when I'm asking, when I'm taking people through this exercise, they'll say, okay, oh yeah, this happened. So what was your example again? We were using. Uh, oh, like FinServe companies. Like a, Yeah. Yeah. So what would be a use case there? Uh, so I guess we're looking for, um, you know, we're financial services. We need some IT security software for, okay. you know, dealing with hackers. Got it. Okay. So all of a sudden, ransom. I wake up one day, ransomware. You know, uh-oh, that sucks. So maybe I solve it. And then I'm like, whatever it is, however I solved it. And I say, okay, great. What did you do next? Or like even better, you get, I log on. I see that our website's being held ransom. And I'm freaking out. Okay, what happened next? What did you do? And I say, oh, I went to Google and I looked for this. Okay, great. What'd you do next? Mm -hmm. Right? And it sounds almost like childlike, but I just want to see what they did. What was the actions they took? So I look at that part of it. And then I look at how they evaluated the shortlist, right? How did they create it and how did they evaluate it? You know, I, one of the questions I really like to ask these days is like, what made you trust us? Hmm. You know, whether it's our marketing or the sales team, right? Why us? What, what made you have faith in us? And, and then that's where I tend to leave it. And then from there, I draw all the insights around, here's the average of all those things. Because what happens is I go through all the data. I do uh, what they call in qualitative work, something called codifying, where I'm taking qualitative statements that are, you know, straightforward or there's subtext to them. And they fit in a bucket or they fit into a category. And I just prioritize those categories about what's happening. And that's it. That's, that's my sort of process for it all. And then the next step is now you have to figure out like, how does it impact your marketing? Yeah. I have a possibly stupid question. <laughs> how, how do you get people to not give you answers that make them feel smarter than the reality of their actual research? So like, for example, in this case, oh, there was ransomware. 
you know, if I'm a senior leader and you're interviewing me, it's going to be awkward to go, I Googled how to stop a ransomware attack on my company. Like, how do you get them to be open uh, to that? Funny enough, they are. Um, not everyone is, but the thing is, again, it comes back to how do you set up this environment? And I like to think that if you do your job well as an interviewer, you're creating a safe space where they can talk about the product. A lot of what I do is anonymous, right? It's just aggregate. And I'm asking them what they did with no judgment, right? There's no right or wrong answer here. So some people, yeah, pride can get in the way or they think they have to tell you something um, that you know, they believe will be helpful. And people are like that, right? Oftentimes when you ask a question, they give you a ton of information very quickly within 30 seconds. Blah, 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 blah. But my, my whole thing is if I can anchor things to actions, they'll say, let's take that IT example, ransomware. What did you do next? Oh my God, I Googled. And then um, I, I saw Liam. Um, he, he was like first thing. So I, I clicked on him, reached up to LinkedIn. Then we talked on Saturday. And it was great. I found a solution. Awesome. Okay. I want to go back a bit. So you Googled, you saw Liam, clicked on his photo. What happened next? Right. I'm taking them back to like that timeline mm -hmm. of like how things yeah. happen. So then they might say, I, oh, yeah, I know. It's really embarrassing. I didn't really know what to do. IT was IT. I couldn't get them on the line. Um, you know, and someone was on vacation. He didn't tell me that in the, he or she did not tell me that in the first answer. Now they did. Right. So it's, I'm just making this up, but yeah, yeah. this is what an interviewer can do where they're really peeling back things to uncover what was at the heart of the matter. So yeah, people sometimes will give answers that don't necessarily fit, but you can always go back and re-ask questions in a way that gets you the things you need. And on the interviewer part, does it help or hinder for it to be an internal person versus an unbiased external, quote unquote, professional interviewer. Yeah. Pros and cons. Um, if it's internal, they know the product better, hands down. Mm -hmm. um, and I always say that I, you know, because I am a third party interviewer, I will only know so much. I do as the best I can to understand, right? And that's where they're setting the research objectives really helps a lot. So they will be, uh, they'll always be a better. They'll always pick up on things that I will not. On the other side of it, it is biases, right? Sometimes your pre or preconceived ideas of what, how things should be cause you to filter the questions. Whereas I have no allegiance to the company or the product. And sometimes people are more honest with me because mm -hmm. they might have a relationship with you or the company. And I will often get answers along the lines of, I've never said this before, <laughs> right? It happens. Um, not all the time, but it does, right? So it can be helpful to have a third party audit what you're doing. Because sometimes that's how I, I see myself as an auditor, really. Um, but it's also helpful to have someone internal who really understands all the ins and outs of the company because they'll pick up on these really small details that I might not be aware of. So pros and cons. Yeah. Yeah. So this, this has all been fantastic. And I'll tell you where I want to leave this because this is really okay. for anyone who at this point is like, that all sounds great, but that's like an extra bit of like an extra 5% of information that I'm not already getting. 
what have you seen? And I know that's not true, but what have you heard? Even kind of an interesting one of things that have come out of this research that has either completely invalidated a hypothesis, changed a direction, something that made this like, oh my God, how did we not know this up until now? I'll tell you when it's right on my website. So I, I have a case, I call it my one case study. Because it's like, I do the same sort of work over and over again. So when people ask me, well, how does this work? I'm like, well, here it is. Um, it was at a company called Rewind. They're in Ottawa where I reside, Ottawa, Canada. They do backup for SaaS companies, backups, backup and recovery software. Mm-hmm. They had bought a GitHub solution. They made an acquisition. And when you make an acquisition, the theory is that, okay, well, we've got, we have a sales and marketing engine, should plug into the machine because it's similar to all other product lines and show, show me the money. Well, there wasn't much money coming in as they were hoping to see. So we went and tried to understand why. And two things, like one big thing that came out was one, we were actually targeting the wrong person in a lot of our marketing materials based on who we thought the customer was. So that shifted. And the second thing was it's a GitHub product right? And it's a backup solution. Developers love to build their own thing. So what we found out on average, they're all trying to build their own version of the product and hitting (laughs) a wall because the job they wanted to have was, and just for sake of argument, like cloud applications save most things, but they don't save everything, right? And that's why Rewind exists. Um, And Rewind can restore, which is the big one. They all were fine. They didn't really want a backup of their data in GitHub and their repository. They wanted to be able to restore if something got lost. That's what they could not build. So when we went and looked at stuff, we're like, how did we miss this? Because we were talking about that part of the process nowhere along the lines of don't do this, you're going to waste your time because developer time is really expensive. So what happened was we just changed a lot of the high performance part of it. Like just before they installed, which was stop writing your own stuff, man. Like, come on. So we did that with the ads, with the landing page, H1, H2s, whatever, what have you. Installs doubled because now they, what would happen was they would see, oh, I should not take that step. I want to save myself the time and the pain of finding that that's not going to work. Might as well just go install Rewind, right? So in the product manager, he wasn't, didn't believe it at first. He's like, let's just wait a few weeks and still, yeah. So that is one example, right? Of that's where incredible. it can be impactful. Yeah. So that's you just have to understand like what, it, yeah, the language they're using and why, right? And sometimes you're, there's little things you're missing that you won't know until you actually go and start talking to buyers and customers. That and everyone, if anyone's curious, it's right on my website. They can all read it and. See how it all went down. Amazing. That is a fantastic place to leave it. This has been a wonderful (laughs) conversation. I enjoyed every minute of this. Um, I really appreciate appreciate coming by. I'm glad we finally got to do it, but that was great. Yeah. Well, Well, thank you for having me. It was great.